regard to this institute. Uh, Terry, in his very, very intriguing, his excellent presentation this afternoon, brought up a biblical verse from the book of Revelation that brought to mind a joke. And I just want to start with this joke because I don't have many good jokes, and this is a biblical joke, so it's acceptable. Seems a, a new pastor came into town, and he was determined to go and visit all of his parishioners. Now, he did this with some trepidation, as any pastor does upon coming into a church. So he went to visit the first parishioner on the list, and he walks into the property of this person, and he encounters a beautiful garden. He is so impressed, filled with roses and trees, manicured perfectly, and he's filled with this joy. And as he's walking through this garden and walking down to the front door of the house, he's singing to himself, I come to the garden alone when the dew is still on the roses. You all know this. And he's singing in this beautiful voice, and he comes to the house. He knocks on the door. He knocks on the door, and he hears activity inside. He hears someone running about. So he knocks and knocks. No one answers the door. He knocks again. He can still hear motion in the house, and yet no one answers the door. This poor guy, this is his first parishioner to visit, and he's upset because the person is not answering the door. So he takes out his calling card, which has his name on the front. He turns it over, and he writes simply, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. And he leaves it on the door. <laughs> it turns out that the woman who was in the house takes the card off the front door, and she goes into her study, and she opens the Bible to Revelation 3.20, and she finds the famous quote that Daria alluded to today. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and be with him. The next Sunday, she went to church. And not to be outdone, as she was walking out of the church, she handed her own calling card to the pastor who was at the door. The pastor looks at the card, he turns it over, and he sees Genesis 3.10. So he goes back to his study, opens the Bible, and hears these words. I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Of all the stuff I learned about Revelation 3.20, that was what stuck in my mind. <laughs> okay, to get down to more serious business and to try to finish up in as expedition a fashion as possible what we have to discuss today, remember that I said at the end of the talk last time that we talk about an intermediate state of the soul. Intermediate between what? Intermediate between the death of the individual and the dawning of the last day. In that intermediate period, we say, the soul has a foretaste of the fate that will be sealed for all eternity on the last day. The emphasis of orthodox eschatology is that the fate, the eternal fate of the person, is sealed when Christ returns in glory when the resurrection of the dead occur, when the souls that have been preserved in grace by God are rejoined to the resurrected body, which is a transformed body, as we'll see, and that the person 
body and soul together, stands before the judgment seat of Christ. When the love of God, the unmitigated, unadulterated, unadulterated love of God is manifested in Christ, returned in glory, the conscience judges itself. In the presence of the love of God, the soul must reflect and must judge itself, and that person knows whether it has been saved or condemned at that point. However, in that intermediate state, in the state between the death of the person and the dawning of the last day, there are things that we as Orthodox Christians do for the sake of that soul. St. John Maximovich says in one sentence very clearly how that applies to us. He says, some souls find themselves in a condition of foretasting eternal joy and blessedness and others in fear of the eternal torments which will come in full after the last judgment. Until then, now listen what he says, until then, changes are possible in the condition of souls, especially through offering for them the bloodless sacrifice, namely commemoration at the liturgy, and likewise other prayers. So, St. John makes the point that we are obliged to pray for the souls in this intermediate state because somehow those souls benefit by the prayers of the faithful. This is something that strikes people from Protestant backgrounds as strange because they're not used to praying for the dead. Praying for the dead seems odd, out of order. For the Orthodox, however, it is a testimony to belief in the resurrection of Christ. If Christ is risen from the dead, if Christ has indeed overcome death, that means that those of us who are in Christ, both those of us who are still in the body and those of us who are in that intermediate state by virtue of the separation of the soul from the body, we are all still united in Christ and because Christ has triumphed over death, that means that we are all still together in that one body. We pray for the dead because it is the duty of every Christian to pray one for another. If I asked you to pray for me and you said, sorry, I don't think so, you would be seen as being negligent in your Christian duty. Likewise, those who do not pray for the dead, for those souls in the intermediate state are being negligent in their duties to pray for fellow members of the body of Christ. That's the basic reason. But now we have to look at it more carefully. Why do we pray for the dead? Why do we pray for these souls? To use the language of the services, I'm just going to give two excerpts from the Trisagion service, the Parastas. In that service, we say these petitions. You've all heard them. Again, we pray for the repose of the soul of the servant of God departed this life, and that thou will pardon his every transgression, both voluntary and involuntary. And later, in the same litany, we say that the Lord God will establish his soul where the just repose, the mercies of God, the kingdom of heaven, the remission of his sins, let us ask of Christ, our eternal king and our God. In short, what we ask for in these prayers for the dead 
is pardon and remission of sins. Okay? This is the language that is used. We ask for the pardon and remission of the sins of that soul for which we are praying. Now, how do we understand such a language? That understanding is determinative for our understanding of what we do for the departed souls. And it drives a wedge, a real dividing line, between how Orthodox understand prayer for the deceased and how Roman Catholics understand prayer for the deceased. How do we understand this? Let me ask you this, on the basis of what we discussed in previous sessions. What do sins do to our conscience? If the soul is separated from the body at death, and the soul is able to reflect, is able to sort of engage in this kind of self-assessment, sins that still afflict, afflict the conscience cause what I've referred to as what? prickings or stings of conscience. These prickles or these stings of conscience are what make the soul agitated as the soul has that noetic awareness of being in the presence of God. When we pray for the remission of sins, for the pardon of transgressions, for the people who are in this intermediate state, what we are praying for is a cessation of that kind of sting of conscience. All right? In other words, we saw that sin has a scarring effect on the conscience and that that effect must be pacified so that the soul is ready to stand at the dread judgment seat of Christ. Now, how does that work? Father Lev Poalo, now uh, Archbishop Lazar Poalo, explains it this way. Every prayer offered in behalf of the departed is an act of love. Prayer one for another in the church is an expression of care, of compassion, of being joined in a bond of love with that person. When we pray for each other, we do so because we're joined together in a bond of love. Likewise, when you pray for the person whose soul has departed from the body, whose soul is in that intermediate state, by the grace of God, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, that prayer conveys a wave of love to that soul, bathes that soul in that love. And being so bathed in love, the conscience that might have these stings and prickles is so convinced of the love of God so moved by the love of the body of Christ praying for him or for her that that soul enjoys a comfort, a peace, a more blessed repose. In other words, when we pray for the forgiveness of sins and the pardon of transgressions, we're praying that that soul become aware of the loving embrace of the grace of God as that soul becomes aware of the loving embrace of the grace of God, that soul is calmed. It has a confidence it didn't have before. No matter how holy someone is in this life, there are always imperfections. No one is perfect but God. And so every soul needs to have these prayers, that their sins and transgressions, that afflict the conscience, that prickle the soul, that make the noetic awareness agitated, that these may be forgiven 
and that the soul may thus be better prepared to stand at the last day in this new body, this transformed body, may be able to stand with a new confidence before this revelation of the unmitigated love of God. One image that expresses this kind of prayer for the deceased is this. Those of you who raise children know that this is the case. When your child is asleep, the child is not engaging in the kind of intellectual, mental activity, certainly not in the kind of physical activity that they do when they're awake. But they're aware, aren't they? And in the middle of the night, when you go to adjust the covers over that child, when you plant a kiss on the forehead of that child, that child experiences that as a comfort, as an act of love. And that child is calmed. That's what our souls are like when the people pray for them. The soul, how did I describe the state of the soul? As in a state of slumber, because we're not worried about appetites anymore the way the soul is when it's in the body. We're not worried about mental activity, the way the soul is when it's in the body. The soul has this noetic awareness. It's aware, but that soul is in a slumber of sorts. That's why we pay, pray for the repose of the soul, right? We do say it all the time. We pray for the repose of the soul of the servants of God. In that state of repose, a prayer for the deceased is like a kiss on the forehead of a sleeping child. This calms the soul and better prepares it, convincing it of the love of God. That's the way we Orthodox understand the significance of the prayers for the dead. Now, this differs to a great extent from the Roman Catholic understanding. Now, I want to say that I'm not going to engage in Catholic bashing here, okay? Roman Catholics pray for the dead just as we do. The practice of praying for the dead was established both in the Latin West and in the Christian East. Both churches in their theology felt compelled to explain why the practice was so carefully adhered to. The explanation of the Eastern Church shows that it is based on an emphasis of the love of God and the grace of God. That's why we pray for the dead. It's our duty, and those souls benefit by the love expressed by our prayers in the grace of the Holy Spirit. The Roman Catholic understanding tried to explain the same practice, but took a very different approach. That approach, as you know, and guess what? I got a new marker today. <laughs> is the doctrine of purgatory. Okay, now, often Catholics will say, you Orthodox have the same understanding as we do of praying for the dead. Well, it is true that we pray for the dead as they do, but we have a very different understanding. The Orthodox understanding is an understanding based on love, and on grace, okay? The Roman Catholic understanding is more of a conception based on justice, okay? 
Now, justice is, of course, not a bad thing. But let me explain how the Roman Catholic Church has explained the necessity of praying for the dead. According to the theology of the traditional theology, of course, of the Latin Church, what happens when someone sinned is that they could sincerely repent of their sin. They could be sorry for their sin. They could confess their sin. And that sin could be forgiven by absolution. Okay? But even after someone had been forgiven of their sin through confession, repentance, absolution, there still was what was called a temporal punishment. due to sin that had to be expiated. For instance, if someone kills someone, I mean, this is not an unreasonable doctrine of the Roman Church. The idea that if someone killed someone, you could be forgiven of that sin because you were truly sorry for it and you repented of it, but there was a temporal punishment associated with that sin that justice demanded had to be expiated before you were completely off the hook, so to speak. All right? And that temporal punishment due to sin was expiated while you were alive by a number of practices. For instance, uh, ascetical practices, fasting, engaging in pious activities, uh, engaging in certain activities that were granted. You've heard of this term. You all heard of that? The term indulgences. That means that the church felt that it had a treasury of the merits of Christ and of all the saints and that it could take out of that treasury and apply it to your soul so that the temporal punishment due to sin could be taken away. Okay, And then you would be completely freed from any stain of that sin. Now, what happens if someone dies, according to the Roman Catholic view, even after having confessed their sins, repented of their sins, received absolution, the soul is separated from the body, but it has not had time to expiate the temporal punishment due to sin. That soul would have to spend time in purgatory before being granted entrance into heaven. And in praying for the deceased, one could apply the merits that one was attaining by doing certain prayers, certain pious activities, and so forth, approved by the church, to the soul of the person who had passed out of the body because of death. And then that soul was able to pass through purgatory in a quicker time, so to speak, and enter into the glory of the beatific vision in heaven. This is the Catholic doctrine. Now you can see it's an explanation of why you should pray for the dead. Because a soul that had died without expiating the temporal punishment due to sin was not in the state of perfection that was required for that soul to enter into heaven. So prayers for the dead, offering the sacrifice of the liturgy for the dead, these were all works that tended to the betterment of the soul by shortening the time of purgation that was required before the soul could enter into heaven. All right? It makes sense in a way, but it's based on a completely different mindset than the orthodox understanding. That's my point. This is a more justice-centered, juridical view of why prayer for the dead is good. 
why it is incumbent upon us to pray for the dead. Now, it's genuinely Roman in its origin because the Romans were better at nothing than law. They were the geniuses of organization. The Greeks built theories. The Romans built roads. You know, the Greeks came up with great, elaborate, complex structures of thought. The Romans built empires that were very well organized, and law was the cement that held it all together. It makes sense in this kind of cultural context for a more juridical understanding to characterize a lot of the thought of the Roman church. Now, because of the excesses of especially the granting of indulgences okay, in the Middle Ages, what led the reformers to reject the idea of praying for the dead is in essence they were rejecting the idea of indulgences. And in, what they did is they threw out the baby with the bathwater. In reacting against an abuse, they threw out a practice that had been in Christianity from the very beginning, and as I said yesterday, had its antecedents in Jewish practice itself. Orthodoxy, in many ways, uses similar language about what happens when one prays for the dead. We talk about forgiveness of transgression, the pardon and remission of sins, the cleansing of the soul, but it understands those in a completely different way than when the exact same terms are used in a Roman Catholic context. I make that clear? Okay. So, our understanding is based on this idea that the calming of the conscience the healing of the conscience by virtue of the expression of love that is conveyed to the reposing soul through our prayers for them have an effect of better preparing that soul for the last day. Now, let me read a passage from um, Archbishop Puhalo. He says it this way, but what is it then to have, quote, their sins pardoned and remitted by the prayers of the faithful? Is it not that their own conscience, listen to what he says here, is it not that their own conscience is relieved of its burden by the light of our love generated in the serving of the holy mysteries for that person? For they know already that they are saved and destined for the kingdom but perhaps their conscience is still troubled by the burden of its self-knowledge. And the conscience is, after all, our only accuser. Nonetheless, this much is clear, that God allows the manifestation of our love and prayers to be received by the souls of the reposed in order to increase their joy and give them comfort and the feeling of oneness and companionship common to the body of Christ, the Holy Church, which leads us in the struggle of love. For that reason, then, the Church enjoins us at particular times to pray for the dead. On the third day, on the ninth day, on the fortieth day, on the anniversary of death. We've seen this yesterday. We talked about this. So important is it to pray for the dead according to the mind of the church that even those people who are forgotten whose names have faded from the memory of people are still prayed for in the life of the church when the Saturday of souls this is why I always tell in my parish we always have a small group of people that come for the Saturday of souls and if it's 10 people, I always tell them, I always commend them. I said, do you realize that you have done such an act of love 
for people who no longer have people who remember them, to pray for them. And I always say, may it be the same with us. If we're ever forgotten, may there be 10 people in some out-of-the-way church in south-central Pennsylvania who are gathering to pray for us. This is a tremendous act of love. We used to, um, the word for Soul Saturday in Greek is psychosavaton. When you translate it, transliterate it into English, it looks like psychosabaton. And we used to joke when I was in seminary, just when you thought it was safe to go to church, it's psychosabaton. But the psychosabaton, the prayers for the dead on the Saturday of souls, are meant to assure that the church is fulfilling its ministry to pray for the departed, even if we don't know their names anymore, any longer. This is how seriously this has been ingrained in the mind of the church. What we do in praying for the dead is we grant them a spiritual increase. This is probably the best way to describe it. And again, Archbishop Lazar puts it this way. The benefits which the repose derive from these daily liturgies and commemorations are not in the form of forcing God to mercy or buying off demons, but in the form of spiritual increase. The idea, by the way, of this kind of system is that there is a debt that has to be paid. You have an account. Those of you who were raised uh, Roman Catholic, remember the old prayer books that we used to have as children? And there were all kinds of prayers that were given indulgences. How were the indulgences measured? In days. You could say a certain prayer, there was an indulgence of 250 days or 500 days or one year. And then there were certain sort of patterns of pious behavior that granted you a plenary indulgence, which meant wipe the slate clean completely of the temporal punishment due to sin. This was caricatured in the Middle Ages where it was said that the church was selling forgiveness of sins. That is technically not correct. What was being sold with an indulgence wasn't the forgiveness of sins, but the remitting of the temporal punishment due to a sin that had already been forgiven because we have to be fair here in this. In any case, there's this idea that you have an account and that you sort of somehow would eliminate what it was you owed to God. That is the problem with this system. It makes God sort of someone who's collecting uh, remuneration, a recompense for the sin. The Orthodox system is much blurrier. Remember I told you yesterday one of the things that attracted me to Orthodoxy was just how messy and vague it was about certain things. Well, this is where that difference between Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism comes into graphic relief because the Roman Catholic system is beautifully precise. The Orthodox system is mysteriously nebulous. That's why I like this system better. Because we don't know about these things with the kind of scientific precision that you know, we would otherwise like to bring to it. But we know that praying for the dead is an act of love. And that act of love is somehow tending to the spiritual increase of the soul. Okay, Puhalo goes on. The church as a loving mother desires that all her children have the best, or at least better. The reposed member of the church is still a member. The organism of which he was and is a cell has not ceased to function to the fullest. And that functioning which is certainly soteriological, pertaining to salvation, 
and pertains to the spiritual development of all her members involves the whole created universe which is being redeemed along with man. It certainly involves the repose in some way. Now listen to what he says here. The grave does not form a barrier to the love and life of the Holy Church. And that life is a liturgical life. The co-suffering love of the body of the faithful extends to all alike and penetrates the grave and Sheol. The saints, though, bodily, though already glorified and interceding for us, derive benefit from our commemoration of them. And we pray for them and for all for the sake of their increase so that by God's hand love is made manifest and they pass from light to light, from joy to joy, from glory to glory, every good and every perfect thing being made more perfect, more radiant by the divine action of godly love. And what do we begin the Trisagion service with? When we sing the Treparia, the first Treparion of the uh, Trisagion service, what is the first Treparion? How does it begin? With the souls of the righteous made for, uh, what's the translation you're used to? Brought to perfection or made perfect. The idea is that our prayer adds a spiritual increase to the state of that soul. And the increase of our spiritual life is an eternal progression. Now I'm really going to get into dangerous territory here for me. Because I'm not a mathematician. But I did take two years of calculus at one point in my life. And I remember this. I remember this. That there are mathematical functions. That if you graph the function, what you have is something like this. I don't know what this is, a parabola, I think it's called. And what happens is that this arm of the parabola gets ever closer to the y-axis, and this gets ever closer to the x-axis, whichever is which, and it gets infinitely closer for all eternity, but it never, never touches it, never intersects it. This is an image of the spiritual life as we see it, an ever-deepening of the spiritual life all right, without our being fused into God and losing the identity that is ours by virtue of being a created being by God. All right? And so the spiritual increase of this kind of view of the spiritual life means that we pray for all who have died throughout the ages because the spiritual increase pertains to all. And I gave you an example that usually startles people when I talk about this. Who is the first person for whom we offer the liturgy? Especially... For our most holy, most pure, most blessed and glorious lady, the Theotokos and ever-Virgin Mary. Of all of those who lived, who has attained the perfection more than she, and yet she is still remembered in our prayers at the liturgy. So, the prayers for the deceased in the orthodox mindset are not bribes to God. We're not buying God off. We're not trying to move God to mercy that he wouldn't show of his own volition. God is infinitely merciful, willing to give to all as they need. That's not the purpose of the prayers for the dead. It's not to move God to do something he wouldn't otherwise do. It's to prepare the soul who is in repose, who might not be as well prepared as he or she might be to stand before the dread judgment seat on the last day. It is to comfort the soul and make that soul 
more receptive and more aware of the love of God and the grace of God which fills all that which is lacking. Now, you always get a question like this. What happens if someone is a total reprobate during life, completely a sinner, without any discipline, without any sense of response to God, will that person be saved if after he or she dies, you pray for them? If you're rich enough, you can live really a wanton life and just make sure people are constantly praying for you after you die. Listen, God is no fool, and the conscience is not fooled. You can fool someone else, but you can't fool your own conscience. You can't. And the conscience that has been branded completely marred by someone who knows they're playing games with God, that person has made a fundamental choice to reject God. I think the people who pray even for such people are doing a great act of mercy. But whether it has the kind of effect that that person would have hoped those prayers would have had, that's another matter. Prayers are not magic. Someone who's opted to reject God is going to reject God and will not be able to be restored to proper relationship just because prayers are offered for that person after death. But the person who really wants to please God, who in his or her life has tried to respond to God in the way that one should live in relationship to God, and who dies imperfect, as we all die imperfect, and has those prickles of conscience and those stings of conscience, that soul especially benefits from the prayers of those of us who are still among the living because those acts of love better prepare the soul to stand before Christ unashamed. What imagery do we use? That we may stand with faces unashamed on that day. That's what the prayers are for, for those people in particular, for those who have chosen to embark on that way of salvation, but none of us dies in a state of perfection, and the prayers offered for us help to prepare us to stand with ever more confidence, with spiritual increase, so that when the last day dawns, we are ready to stand confidently because we trust in God and God's love that has been so effectively shown to us through these prayers. This is the orthodox way of understanding all of that language of cleansing, of forgiveness of sins and pardon of transgressions for the dead. We're not magically paying off God. We're not magically wiping away sins that were never repented of. We're not doing anything like forcing God's hand because God is all giving in his love anyway. What we're doing is reminding that soul of those realities. That's what the prayers do. These are not acts of magic by any stretch of the imagination. Before I finish this hour, Oh, I have some time, a lot of time. Let me talk about memory eternal. Okay? We sing at the memorial services, at the Trisagia, at the funeral service. May their memory be eternal, or memory eternal simply. An Arabic, This idea that memory may be made eternal. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I think it has biblical roots, and I want to tell you what I think the fundamental meaning of this prayer is. Remember when I talked about Sheol? Okay, remember when I talked about Sheol? How was Sheol depicted in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament? It was depicted as a place of forgetfulness. In fact, maybe the Psalms say, will you remember the dead? 
shall the dead arise to praise thee? Going to Sheol was like going to the land of forgetfulness. And the souls there, in redressing God, are described as whom thou rememberest no more. Okay? This figurative language was meant to show that when one was in Sheol, in this abode of the dead, one was separated from God. What changed that? What broke the bounds of Sheol? What enabled those in Sheol to escape and be reestablished in God's presence? The resurrection of Christ. That's why the icon shows Sheol, Hades being destroyed and the dead being liberated. So at one level, at one level, the prayer, memory eternal, means this. May this person be the beneficiary of the saving grace of Christ that shattered the bonds of Sheol and liberated people from the oblivion of death. In other words, may the victory which Christ won over death be accounted toward that person. That's one level of it. That's probably the most primitive and biblical understanding that God now remembers that person because that person, even though dead by virtue of Christ's resurrection, is established still in a living relationship with that person. So when we sing memory eternal, we're saying, may the victory of Christ apply to that person. Another level of meaning. If you read um, in the New Testament, what Christ says in the Gospel of Luke to his disciples at one point, he says... Your names are written, inscribed in heaven. And in being inscribed in heaven, those names are written in the book of life, which is the eternal book of life. The idea that those who have been saved by Christ, who have accepted the grace of salvation, have their names inscribed in heaven, means that they are forever written in the book of life. So in a way, when we sing memory eternal, another way of expressing that is to say that may their names be inscribed in the book of life, which show all of those who have been saved by God for all eternity. That's another level. See? So may the grace of Christ, the victory of death, be ascribed to that person so that they may be shattered from the oblivion, they may be freed from the oblivion of Sheol, of Hades, May their name be forever ascribed in the book of life, the eternal book of life. And yet, there's another memory that's, a, that's referred to here, another level of remembrance, and that's the remembrance among us. Okay, this is the lowest level of the meaning memory eternal. May this person be remembered by others so that those others may pray for that person. I think this is the least of the meanings, the better meanings refer to God ascribing to that person the grace of the victory of Christ over death and inscribing that person in the eternal book of life by virtue of the victory that Christ won. But there's also this human level of memory eternal. May their memory be preserved so that always they may be prayed for. Many people have a pious custom, which you know I'd like to encourage you to continue. Maybe some of you do it already, to have a book, a small binder, where you list the names of those for whom you pray. In that book, you list all of the deceased of your family, your friends. And when we have Soul Saturday liturgies, you can just reproduce those pages and give them to the priest. Okay? 
This is a way of sort of enacting in a very minor way the prayer that the persons who have died, may they be remembered, may their memory be eternal. That, of course, I said, is the most human and lowest of the levels. But their name being inscribed in the eternal book of life, where they are remembered always before the presence of God, that is the primary way of understanding, may their memory be eternal. Also, we have the practice of koliva, the wheat, the boiled wheat. This is a practice that also has several levels of meaning. The highest level of meaning, the boiled wheat, you all know what koliva is, the wheat prepared for the memorial services, boiled wheat that is sweetened. Usually it's great, I love it. This has several levels of meaning as well. Christ says in John chapter 12, 12 verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit much grain. The idea that a grain planted in the ground, if it dies, brings forth abundant life, was seen as a symbol of a Christian dying in right relationship with God. The death of that person was not the end. The burying of that person was done in anticipation of the last day, when that body would be raised, a transformed, transfigured, glorious body, and that that person would be established in eternity as alive, all right, in Christ, a person, body, and soul reunited. So the wheat has that symbolism. Also, it has the symbolism, what does the wheat taste like? It's not something like, you know, a main course of a meal. It's like a dessert. It's sweet. To show that what waits us on that last day is the sweetness of eternal life. And also, on a very basic human level, like all things like mercy meals, when you have meals in honor of the deceased, usually on the day of the funeral, sometimes on the 40th day, this was a way of doing a good deed in the name of the person who was deceased. You feed the people, in other words. Okay? We, living in a culture where we have a super abundance of food, don't think much about getting a little container of wheat. But you know, at one point, that was considered a great treat. All right, to have it sweetened and distributed. So all of these levels also apply. This wheat is a symbol of the life of the resurrection. And so for the Christian, death is a sleep of hope. It is not a sleep of despair. It's a sleep where the person in the intermediate state, after reflecting on his or her prickles of conscience, stings of conscience, by virtue of the sins that they committed, in rejoicing in the virtues that they had cultivated. Remember, we saw that the affliction of the stings of sin were represented by devils, demons, and maybe these demons really are there, but if they have any power over the soul, it's because of the passions that it still vexed the soul at the moment of death but also the virtues on the soul, represented by angels, cause the soul to rejoice. No soul is in a state of perfect rest at the moment of death. There's always some agitation. And the only way to overcome that agitation in the intermediate state between the death of the person and the dawning of the last day is for that soul to be reminded, convinced, to be an experience of the unmitigated, pure, warm love of God. And the prayers that we offer for those people convince them of that love. 
calm and pacify the soul. Remit the sins. Forgive the transgressions. Heal those wounds of the soul and grant it a better standing on the last day when that soul will be reunited with the body for the last judgment. This isn't magic. It's all about love because God is love. And with that reminder of the love of God, the soul is able better to be prepared for the glorious last day when it is going to judge itself by virtue of standing before the unmitigated love of Christ revealed. So these practices of praying for the dead are intrinsic to Christianity. They are not legalistic payoffs. They are acts of love. And it is incumbent upon every Christian to pray for every other Christian. And any Christian who says, I shouldn't pray for the dead because they're dead, is denying the fact that the resurrection unites all of us in the body of Christ, the living body of Christ. That's what these prayers are for. So let me end there and ask for some questions. We have some time. And then we're going to be able to go to the final section of the talk where we talk about some of the other facts that apply to this Christian life as it pertains to the uh, commemoration of the dead. Yes. As a former Roman Catholic, I can remember the nuns telling us when we were young children that, you know, when you prayed for the souls in purgatory, they eventually are in heaven, mm -hmm. and then when we die, those souls that we prayed for would die for us. So we now pray my, for you, right. right. So now my question is, with the Orthodox belief being a little bit different, do, do we feel the same way we pray for the souls who are dead? When we're dead, those souls can also pray for us as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, many are, the, we also have all, we have all soul Saturdays where we pray for all of the dead, right, whose names we don't remember. But we also have another Sunday where we don't know the names of everyone, and yet we commemorate them and we ask for their prayers. That's the Sunday after Pentecost, known as the Sunday of All Saints. In other words, we ask them to intercede for us. There are many saints whose names we don't know. Not every saint that's officially glorified. Um, you know, every saint that exists has not been glorified. There are many saints whose names are not listed on the canon of the saints of the church have not been canonized, yet they're there. And so we ask for their intercession. And yes, the souls of the departed resting in the presence of God can pray for us at that point as well. In fact, if you look for the, uh, at the office, the service of the parting of the soul from the body, these are enlisted to pray. All saints are listed to pray for that person at the moment of death. Not saints with a capital S, right. okay? Those were saints with a capital S because of the intensity of their participation in the Holy Spirit. These are especially powerful allies to have, but there are many others to call upon as well. Yes, Terry. Yes, Father. Um, I was very uh, intrigued by your explanation of the uh, temporal punishment due to sins, and I'm curious how you would uh, interpret a passage which is frequently used to, uh, to explain that concept. And that's where David and Bathsheba, in the, you know, in the Old Testament, mm -hmm. they have a child together mm -hmm. due to an adulterous union. Mm -hmm. And the child gets sick. And David prays and prays for forgiveness for God that uh, this child not die as a result of his sin. Right. And the prophet Nathan, of course, comes to uh, David 
and says, God has heard your prayer, has forgiven your sin, but the child will die because of the sin. Mm -hmm. And this is, of course, usually explained as God forgiving sin, right. yet David needing to expiate that sin, the, the results of that sin, the temporal results of that sin. Now, how would you, as an Orthodox, explain that passage? Okay, good question, very good question. So David, after being forgiven his sin and having the forgiveness pronounced by Nathan, why did his son still die? Why did this price have to be paid? It's not because there was a juridical payment that David had to make. It's the fact that every sin that everyone commits has an effect in the world. It's not that there is some kind of payment that must be made to God. In many ways, it's sort of a, just a necessary and natural result of sin that there's always a negative reverberation in the world. Now, to say that every sin has a negative effect, I'm not going to disagree with that. That's what I like, to be honest with you, about the Roman Catholic doctrine of temporal punishment due to sin. It's a clear recognition of the fact that every sin has a reverberation negatively in the world. The question, that I don't question, and that's how I would interpret the David Bathsheba thing. What I do question, however, is that if you pay off that temporal punishment due to sin, somehow you're satisfying God. Uh, I ask you, if someone, say that David lived in the new, the new law, not under the old law, and that he had you know, engaged in this illicit behavior with Bathsheba, had this child, and the child died. If David had a, a plenary indulgence, the temporal punishment due to sin would have been completely eliminated. And yes, the after effect of that sin would still be felt in the world. The after effect of a sin felt in the world is real. And I think when we are forgiven our sins, if we are truly repentant and we do receive the forgiveness of sins, sometimes we, sh we should always manifest that forgiveness by undoing whatever wrong we've done. You know, people who come and say, you know, I've stolen something and I'm so sorry for it. And I really am sorry for it. And that person has genuine remorse and compunction is forgiven. First thing I ask is, is it possible to make restitution? That should be done. But I don't think that the forgiveness of sin and the reestablishment of proper relationship with God is determined by that if it can't be done. You know what I mean? So every sin has a negative effect, has a repercussion in the world that's damaging to self and to others. We should work to undo that as much as possible. But our relationship with God is not dependent on paying off some debt that we owe to God by virtue of that. This is something we should do in love for the betterment of our brothers and sisters in the world, not because God demands the payment for it. Okay, that's the way I would look upon that. Yes, sir. Uh, well, no, we need it because we need it to tape it. Um, of course, I was Protestant for many years and didn't believe in praying for the dead, and now I do it more or less out of desperation for lost time. But. Uh, when you have somebody that uh, has died, but you feel remorseful in your soul or your heart that you could have done more uh, to help them, uh, yeah, a situation like that, I mean, praying for them, even though sometimes you, you struggle in your heart and your mind, you think, well, why am I doing this? Because I mean, like, oh, I'll tell you what, I'll make, I won't make a story. I had a cousin that was uh, from a time we had uh, sweet fellowship in Christ but she really went off the deep end. I mean, it was horrible. I won't go into the story, but she died. And uh, I feel very compelled to pray for her. But at the same time, I felt really remorseful that I didn't do more. 
to help her, but does that help us in a penance way to soothe our own souls because yes, you know, that's a heavy duty situation. See what you're describing here, the way I understand it, is that you felt you should have done more, you're sorry you didn't do more. Yeah. This is your repentance, this is your compunction, and this alleviates the burden of the guilt on you, okay? Now, sometimes to really work out the feeling that, you know, really, um, I should have done more, and even though I'm sorry for it, that's not good enough, sometimes we turn those good energies to helping others. In other words, trying to blunt the effect of sin in the world, even though you can't help that person who is now gone, except by praying for that person, of course, but in an actual practical way, perhaps you can extend this kind of assistance to others. And I think that kind of good work, that kind of good deed, is exactly what should be born out of the grace of forgiveness that God freely gives. Being forgiven, now you're moved to do something practical to make sure others don't fall into the same kind of sin that this friend of yours did. Oh yeah, that you can do. In fact, that not only can you pray for them, we're duty-bound to pray for them. You know? Other questions about this? Yes, back here and then up here. I'm wondering if when you use the terms um, heaven and paradise, you think of them the same and also um, Hades and hell. One source, I don't remember where it was, made me think that in the intermediate state, you're in paradise or Hades, and then at the resurrection, it's heaven and hell. Yes. And also in the biblical quote about today you will be in paradise. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how that fit into the paradise heaven. Ye I think if you're using the terminology very carefully, um, you know, and it's not used consistently in all texts, but the intermediate state, remember I said yesterday people in the intermediate state have a foretaste of the eternal fate, heaven or hell. And in some cases this is described as Hades and paradise. But sometimes Hades and paradise are just used as equivalents for hell and heaven as well. It depends on the text. The important thing to remember is you have this differentiation between being joyful in the presence of God and basking in delight in the presence of the all-loving God or being completely singed out of remorse about being in the presence of the all-loving God. The first is heaven or a paradise. The second is hell or Hades, this alienation from God. That's the basic distinction to keep in mind. Uh, what was the second part of the question again? I'm, yes, I would say usually these are used as equivalents. Okay, Certainly heaven, the idea of reward is cast in the terms of paradise. The restoration of the state of creation and human beings before the fall, before sin distorted it, paradise. Okay? Yes, question up here. Um, I'd like to ask a question that would put you in the position of defending the Orthodox Church. Mm -hmm. um, it's very personal, I hope I can get through this, but we have in our tradition, which is the Orthodox Church in America, we do in fact have all these rituals of comfort. Um, the peristas, the koliva, uh, at 40 days, mm -hmm. at 60 days, in a year, and in two years, meals of mercy, all it. Those of us who come from backgrounds of um, Protestantism and where most of our families are not Orthodox, as our parents and other members begin to die, um, 
these uh, rituals and services and prayers are not said right. for people who are not Orthodox. Mm -hmm. And I realize that the principal benefit is not for those of us who are left behind to comfort us. Nothing stops me, mm -hmm. of course, from for praying right. for my dead. <clears throat> but I am not allowed in the context of the Orthodox Church to have a peristas, etc., cetera, right. etc., cetera. or even to distribute the wheat. Right. The best that I can do is to have their names included right. on that long list right. on the Saturday of Souls. Right. Um, <clears throat> if we are not to judge the state of the dead, that mm -hmm. is, only God knows the conscience of when they died. Right then why are we excluding them and saying, you were not orthodox, we were not one with you, therefore right. we cannot? Well, this is not in the theoretical question for me. I mean, my own father, when he died, uh, was not orthodox. And I understand. I mean, when people always ask me, why can't we give communion to non-orthodox? And, you know, it seems so, how can you priests be so judgmental? I said, I can't give communion to my own parents, I used to tell them. In the same way when my father died, um, I could not commemorate him publicly, all right? Now, why do we do this? It does, does it seem judgmental? Are we being exclusive of people who need our prayers as much as any other? No. Remember this, that the church is not um, the only group of people on the face of the earth who are heard by God. But the church has a reputation to maintain, a pure doctrine to manifest before the world, a distinction that must be maintained between the purity of the Orthodox faith and, despite the good people in other religions, the nevertheless flawed state of these other expressions of Christianity. The way the church makes that distinction between Orthodox and non-Orthodox, between maintaining a witness about the dis differentness, the distinctiveness of Orthodoxy as opposed to other religions, is not by doing certain acts of prayer publicly. All right? The public worship of the church must maintain a clear witness before the world that we see Orthodoxy as something distinct from every other faith. However, that doesn't mean that in the private prayers as Orthodox Christians, when we as Orthodox Christians are there at the Divine Liturgy, we cannot offer prayers for those people in the depths of our hearts. God knows the depths of our hearts. He hears those prayers. It's not by virtue of something that the priest does or doesn't do that makes the prayer heard or makes it more intense. But the church has to maintain this clear witness in the world that Orthodoxy, we do see as somehow standing in distinction from the other, uh, from the other faiths. But the prayer that we as Orthodox offer privately, these are the prayers that we can offer in behalf of those people. And that's what